Hi, everyone. Uh, as you might expect under the circumstances, uh, today's episode is our second impromptu recording about the COVID-19 crisis. Uh, three quick notes first. Uh, in this episode, we spend a fair while uh, at the start laying out the general situation that faces us, including uh, where the virus is, uh, in, in what numbers, uh, how many have died and where, uh, the properties of the virus and the disease and so on. If, like many people, you've been obsessing about this for the last few days or weeks or possibly months, uh, you may feel fine to just skip that section and jump to minute 31, uh, after which we talk about things you're less likely to know about. Uh, if your podcasting software supports chapters, uh, we list five of them in this episode. Second, uh, if you'd like to follow along uh, with my non-80,000 hours checked personal opinions uh, as I'm learning about COVID-19, uh, you can please follow me on Twitter at twitter.com slash And third, uh, we're going to be having more articles about COVID-19, which you'll be able to see when they go on up at 80,000hours.org slash blog. We'll also post that uh, as well as other work and um, articles that we think are interesting at twitter.com slash 80,000hours. Okay, stay safe out there, everyone. Uh, Here's me and Howie. All right, so uh, we're here, uh, me, uh, Robert Wiblin, and, and my colleague, uh, Howie Lample, for what is very much an emergency edition of the 80,000 Hours podcast uh, to talk about the uh, spread of COVID-19, um, what the situation is, and what potentially uh, people can do about it, both, both individuals uh, and, and governments. Um, how, are you doing? how are you doing, Howie? Um, doing well. Happy to, uh, happy to be here. <laughs> um, yeah, I guess I, I could be happier uh, to be here. Um, I'm uh, I'm actually out in the country. I, I left uh, London a week ago. But uh, how are your your camped out uh, in in your house in London? Yes, I am camped out and isolating myself at the moment. Because um, you have cold symptoms, right? Um, yes, I've uh, started getting cold symptoms. Seem pretty minor, but we figured um, you know be as cautious as humanly possible. And so um, uh, our housemates. Um, went out and got an Airbnb to uh, uh, avoid us. And now uh, my girlfriend and I are uh, have the house to ourselves as we wait to make sure that neither of us are actually sick. Yeah. Um, well, yeah, we, we apologize if the audio here is not so good. We, uh, we didn't manage to get all of our equipment out of the office and uh, into the different places that people on the team are uh, in time. So uh, this is a, a slightly more scrappy episode than usual and perhaps even scrappier than our last uh, COVID episode that we did. All right, well, maybe we should start by talking about um, our qualifications just so people have some sense of how seriously to take what we're saying. I guess, uh, as many listeners will know, uh, my background is in economics. I also did a science degree. Um, I guess my main qualification to talk about this is uh, I've been paying attention to the COVID situation for two months and I guess the last two or three weeks living, breathing, eating uh, COVID-19 stuff basically all the time. And I guess particularly the last week, I've more or less uh, done nothing else. Um, yeah, uh, Howie, I guess you actually have more, more of a background uh, in, in the area than me. Yeah, so my um, academic background was um, largely in math and economics and then like a little bit of uh, moral philosophy. Um, and then I spent a couple of years in law school in the U.S. and then left to go work for the Open Philanthropy Project, where I spent a few years. Um, and when I was at OpenPhil, I helped to get our biosecurity and pandemic preparedness program area started up. Um, We then later handed off to somebody who is actually an expert. Um, So I should be very clear that I myself am not one. I don't have any formal training in any of the related areas. Um, But hopefully I picked up something or other um, in the experience of sort of like searching for an expert, making our first couple of grants, trying to like learn the space. Yeah. 
So I've gotten a little bit more confident about uh, trusting our judgment <laughs> over the last few weeks because it seems like things have played out uh, much more closely to what we expected um, in late January and early February, perhaps than, uh, than, than what many other people were predicting. Because we, we had a view that there was a good chance that this could just spread everywhere and, and get out of control and be a worldwide wide pandemic, that it could kill you know, something in the order of 1% of the world's population, that that was plausible. Um, we made, I guess, uh, estimates in, in those early days about the, the case fatality rate, the um, infection fatality rate, uh, the transmissibility, uh, that now all seem kind of consistent with what we've seen over the last six weeks. Yeah, so I haven't gone back and re-listened, but that all sounds um, just about right to me. I guess um, the thing that feels most surprising to me relative to what I believed then um, is how good of a job China has done of containing um, containing the disease in mainland China. Um, and so I think that that was something that I hadn't expected with a respiratory disease that a country you know, so big would actually be able to um, uh, shut down an outbreak that had already spread so far. Yes, uh, that was quite surprising to me. Uh, and I guess initially when they started reporting such a trail off in new cases, I was suspicious that this could be a measurement error somehow. I think uh, we did say at the time that it was just we were in uncharted waters in terms of the, the, the severity of the shutdown that China was doing, that basically no one else had yeah. done this before. So we just didn't know what the effect was going to be. But it, w- it was more than what I thought. It basically, it seems like China to a large extent has controlled the pandemic for now. And the question is, will they be able to maintain that while returning to something resembling normal life? Yeah, that seems right. Um. All right, let's move on and just uh, give people a sense of the of the state of play. Um, as of, I guess we're recording at, <laughs> you have to say the time of day these days, uh, we're recording at 4.30 uh, in, in London on the, the 19th of March. Um, and as of uh, now, we got about 225,000 confirmed cases globally. Uh, but in reality, we would guess that the at least there's 10x that number of, of actual people infected uh, worldwide, potentially quite a bit more than that. About half that number is in China, uh, where we now think that the pandemic is largely controlled, as, as we said. Um, so most of the growth is occurring outside of China. Uh, we're getting about fifteen to 20,000 new confirmed cases a day, uh, with, a, with a special concentration in Europe, in particular, I guess, France and Spain. Uh, and uh, sorry, Italy is actually at the, at the top, um, some in Switzerland and Germany and, and, and the UK. Uh, but they're reporting particularly large increases. Uh, and we're seeing, I guess, about a 15 or 20% increase day on day of out-of-China out cases. So anything you want to add there, Howie? Um, did we also catch Iran? Oh, sorry. Another country that has um, a, a really high caseload. Yeah, sorry. Uh, it seems like there's an enormous number of cases in Iran, but I think their testing capacity is lower. So they're not, <laughs> it shows up less if you just look at the confirmed case increase, or at least it did uh, when, I, when I last checked, if I recall. Well, I guess it has the third most total confirmed cases after China and Italy. So okay. it's up there. So it's up there. Nice. Okay. Yeah. Just checking on Iran, they've got 18,400 confirmed cases, uh, 1,300 deaths or so. And I guess in the last day, uh, they reported, uh, let's see, six, uh, uh, about 1,000 uh, new cases, which is a 7.3% increase. Um, yeah, it looks like the, the case... Increases have been linear for quite some time, which I suspect is because of bottlenecks in testing rather than uh, the, the case is actually growing at a linear at a linear pace. Anyway, yeah, so um, globally, uh, we've got about uh, 9,300 people reported dead, uh, which would give us a case fatality rate around 4%. At least that's what the figure was uh, yesterday. Going quickly back to um, the data in China, hmm. um, it looks like now... Um, just about 
a third of current cases um, or of total confirmed cases are in China. Um, oh. So I, don't know, I think that there's this um, perception that this is sort of like a Chinese virus, um, a Chinese disease that sort of started to affect everybody else. Um, and it seems um, like worth noting that that's just not the case anymore and that most of the confirmed cases at this point are happening outside mainland China. Yeah, at this point, China should be stopping anyone from coming in <laughs> rather than uh, rather than the reverse. Uh, they, have a, they have a lower density of cases than, uh, than many other places. Yeah, okay. So um, in terms of uh, deaths, we've got, uh, I think I uh, put these numbers in yesterday, it was 9,300 deaths globally, which was about a 4% case fatality rate um, based on the number of um, confirmed cases at the time. Uh, keeping in mind, of course, many people were confirmed recently, so they won't have uh, passed away yet. Um, and at the same time, we think we're only capturing a small fraction of all of the cases that are, that are actually out there. Um, so that, that, that kind of raw case fatality rate doesn't tell you all that much. Uh, but we can see interesting variation between countries. Uh, so in South Korea, uh, they've had 8,400 confirmed cases and done the most stringent testing regime of uh, anywhere outside the, the tiny Gulf states. And they had a case fatality rate of 1%, so they had 84 deaths out of um, 8,400 cases. By contrast, in Italy, uh, they've had um, about 36,000 uh, confirmed cases and almost 3,000 deaths, which is, translates to about an 8.3% uh, case fatality rate, so an eightfold difference there, which I think is partly probably due to the um, different demographic uh, breakdown that, uh, that uh, Italy is an older country. Uh, but also, I think um, it suggests that we're capturing far a small, far smaller fraction of all of the infections as confirmed cases in Italy. Uh, and you see that in uh, the different um, confirmation rates within the testing. Uh, so in Korea, uh, they've got, uh, I think, a 3% confirmation rate on, on tests. Uh, while in Italy, uh, when I checked yesterday, it was more like 20, 21%, which was uh, among the highest in the world, which suggests us that there's a vast number of cases in Italy uh, that, are, that, are, that are not being tested for. Uh, and if they were able to test more people, they'd find that there's way more people who have it than what is measured. Yeah. And in those cases, usually the people who do get tested are the people with the most severe cases. Um, yeah. That's a second mechanism for why you end up overestimating the case fatality rate. Right. So um, last time, uh, I think we we pointed to uh, some piece of research that suggested that the best estimate of the infection fatality rate, that is like uh, the probability of someone dying if they actually get infected rather than if they're confirmed through some test to be infected. Uh, was about uh, 1%. Uh, where, do we, where, where are we uh, on, on that research now, Howie? Yeah, I think the um, best answer is that it hasn't changed all that much. Um, it's more complicated now because there are more estimates out there and people are now trying to do estimates that are sensitive to the differences between places because um, we don't expect the inf infection fatality rate to be the same in every country, depending on their medical system, uh, depending on what interventions they choose. Um, but a couple of recent estimates um, were one coming from a top modeling group at Imperial who um, used a 0.9% overall infection fatality rate as their assumption for what the infection fatality rate would be in uh, Great Britain, if Great Britain didn't take um, you know, any more measures than it currently is. Um, so that's sort of like a world where the hospitals really do fill up and get overwhelmed. Um, and then another estimate that I thought was particularly good, um, based mostly on data in China, um, found a 1.6% um, overall infection fatality rate. So I think um, you're going to see most of the estimates somewhere in that like 0.8 to 
to 1.6% range. Um, if you're talking about um, basically like situations that look fairly similar to the situations that um, we've seen so far. Okay, so that infection fatality rate is going to vary a bunch based on whether the hospital system is overwhelmed, which is a big concern that people have. Uh, do you have any sense of uh, you know, what the range would be between you know <laughs> getting it early when the medical system is functioning well to getting it during a, during a peak when most people are going to struggle to get uh, medical attention? Yeah, I think it's really hard to say. Um, so the big constraints that we know of are going to be the number of ventilators um, that they can use. Um, basically, if your lungs stop working, they can mechanically um, sort of breathe air into you um, in ICUs. And so that's a life-saving procedure. And then the people to operate those ventilators. And our best guess right now is that those are sort of the two main constraints. Um, it doesn't seem like almost any country is going to have the capacity um, to treat everybody who needs access to these ventilators if the uh, pandemic is just allowed to sort of go forward without any major interventions. Um, and so a question is, well, how high exactly the case fatality rate are we talking about if we don't do that? Um, and it's really hard to estimate because um, you know, you might want to compare to the data we have from China, where they had a infection fatality rate of about 1.6%, um, but we don't exactly know how much access to this equipment um, those patients had. Um, so I think best guess is that um, like moderately crowded um, hospitals are going to lead to infection fatality rates in the 1% to 1.6% range. And then as they get much more overwhelmed, um, you're going to sort of see them higher than that. And if you can get them less overwhelmed, you're going to see them go down. Um, so that's my sort of like really high level take on it. Yeah. So that sounds about right. I guess, um, in Hubei, even though there was a ton of cases, uh, they benefited from the fact that they could send medical staff and equipment from the rest of China, which I guess meant that things were kind of in an emergency situation, but not completely overwhelmed necessarily. And they were famously building those hospitals incredibly quickly. Um, but yeah, if it was allowed to just overrun entire countries or entire continents, then, uh, you know, everyone would just be in the same impossible situation. Yeah. yeah. And I don't have a sense, like just quantitatively, um, how much exactly and at what point the help from other provinces ended up making a big difference in Hubei. Yeah. I don't, I don't know either. Yeah. You were saying, um, if it's, if it spreads uncontrolled, then, uh, not everyone would be able to get that equipment. It seems like if it, if it spread uncontrolled, approximately no, nobody uh, who needed the equipment, like roughly 0%, uh, would be able to get medical assistance. Um, which I guess is why this seems like it's just such an incredible emergency, potentially like one of the biggest global, like the biggest global emergency that we might live through potentially, uh, that something has to be done to, to stop this progress. Otherwise we could see, yeah, fatality rates, you know, above 1% or like, yeah, 1% of the, of the whole population. Yeah, it seems right. And I guess when we're talking about, um, running out of ventilators, I think it's often to easy to slip into thinking about, um, rich countries yeah. and the fact that they do have some spare ventilator capacity and you can imagine them scaling it up. Um, and then um, there's, you know, a whole bunch of countries that are going to have even less capacity than uh, the places that most of the models are coming from. 
Um, so it should be even more word there. Yeah, it's interesting. Um, we might get to talking about those countries later in this episode, but or they might have to save it for another episode because I haven't done enough background research to understand what the situation is in uh, India. I guess one thing that those countries have going for them is sometimes that it's quite a bit hotter, which apparently uh, can be make it harder for the virus to, to spread. Um, yeah. I, but I guess we also just have incredibly poor data in many of these countries uh, to indicate, yeah, what is the level of penetration of the virus at this point? That's right. Okay, so yeah, severity of the illness. Uh, like, what what fraction of people are asymptomatic? What fraction of people have like a, a serious flu? And what fraction of people, uh, you know, is it is it life threatening for? Yeah, so I think we don't yet have excellent data on any of this. Um, but I can give you a sense of what's out there. Um, so, on what percent of patients are asymptomatic? Um, one of the best measures that we have is. Um, we can look at data from the Diamond Princess, which was this cruise ship that had a terrible outbreak. Um, and a very high percent of the people on the cruise ship ended up getting tested. So they got tested even if they were asymptomatic. And we can then look at, okay, out of all the people who were infected, how many of them were asymptomatic? Um, and depending on how you measure, um, I think you end up getting something like 45% to like 55%. Um, the issue there is that um, it has a fairly long incubation period. So from when you get infected until you start getting sick, even if you're eventually going to be symptomatic, um, there's going to be a long period of time. So we don't know how many of these asymptomatic people from the Diamond Princess, um, once they left the ship, ended up developing symptoms. Um, so you can sort of think of that number as like an upper bound. Yeah, I guess um, there was also a more recent report of, I think, 3,000 or so people who were tested in an Italian village. Uh, where they found about 50 to 75%, they estimated, were, were asymptomatic currently. But that suffers maybe even more severely from this issue that uh, many of them will develop symptoms in, in, in future. Uh, it's very frustrating that more follow-up wasn't done and all of the, all of the people from the Diamond Princess. It seems like a massive oversight because uh, we could have gotten a much higher quality data set there. Yeah, I've actually been looking into this and it seems possible that there's some data out there. Um, Worldometer seems to have some follow-up, but it's just entirely unclear where it comes from. So I don't know how thorough it'll be or anything like that. Yeah, I, I like Worldometer as a website, and it is incredibly frustrating how poorly they source their data. Yeah. Usually, when I've looked into it, it is real and not just making stuff up. But uh, you have to like hunt around for where they're getting it from. Yeah. Okay, so that's the asymptomatic cases. Uh, how about the about the severity breakdown? Yeah. So the heuristic that people have been using has been something like twenty percent of cases are severe. Um, and severe means, in my opinion, like actually quite severe. Um, and it depends by the study, but usually it's defined as something like needing to go to an ICU because, um, uh, you'd like need a ventilator, um, to assist your lungs. That's like a pretty serious, um, situation. A bunch of people who end up in that situation don't end up making it. Um, there's like some chance that you'll end up with longer term damage. Um, from going through that. Um, but it is good that it's only about 20% of people, as far as we know. Um, and then the other 80%, if that's right, um, would be a combination of people who are like seriously ill, who maybe have pneumonia, but pneumonia that's like uh, not bad enough to get them put into an ICU, to people who have flu-like symptoms, to people who are like uh, nearly asymptomatic or asymptomatic. And so that's sort of the range of severity. And I don't think we have a lot of precision within that about um, exactly how it breaks down between those categories. 
Yeah, so this might be a good time to talk about this table that we found in this modeling from Neil Ferguson's group at Imperial College London, which has had a big influence on the conversation over the last few days. Yeah, in table one, they have uh, infection fatality rate estimates by age um, from Verity et al., a paper that I have not looked at at all. <laughs> um, and so they uh, they try to estimate using that uh, the percentage of symptomatic cases that would require hospitalization, which I guess gives you a sense of the, the fraction there that are... Um, that are critical, uh, and that well, and then they also try to break down the percentage of hospitalized cases that require critical care, which I guess in this case is something like a ventilator uh, and potentially a full staff member to, to monitor them. Uh, so for people in our age group, which is thirties, uh, which was uh, what I looked at first, perhaps unsurprisingly, uh, they had had a three point two percent requiring hospitalization estimate. Five uh, percent of those would require critical care, uh, and then they had an infection fatality ratio estimate of zero point zero eight percent, so about one in a thousand. Uh, interestingly, uh, as you go below that, um, all of those rates um, decrease a lot. Uh, even even for young children, it seems like uh, the the disease is affecting young children much less uh, than even middle aged people, uh, to the point where it seems like it's very rare for someone under ten to die. Uh, I guess possibly you know newborns could be affected worse, but. Uh, um, for but yeah, people under 30 don't need to worry so much for themselves. They mostly need to worry about the fact that they're going to infect and kill other people. These numbers ramp up a lot for people, people who are older though. So if you're, in, if you're 40 to 50, then you've got a 5% chance of requiring hospitalization. Uh, 50 to 60, it's more like 10%. Uh, 60 to 70, it's uh, 17%. 70 to 80, uh, 24%. And then 80 plus, uh, they estimate 27%. Uh, and similarly, the the, in, the infection fatality ratios at the estimate uh, go from yeah zero point one percent for you and me, Howie, uh, to zero point one five percent for people in their forties, zero point six percent for people in their fifties, two point two percent for people in their sixties, five point one percent for people in their seventies, and all the way up to nine point three percent fatality rate for people in their eighties. Uh, so very severe numbers potentially for people who are you know uh, older older than us. Um, and do we have a sense of why the numbers are differing so much by age? Uh, interesting. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, I, I don't know off the top of my head. Um, I guess in general, it seems like the flu affects people who are older, potentially a lot worse. Um, uh, but I'm not sure exactly why that is either. Yeah. I guess one theory is that, um, um, it actually is specifically to do with age. And I think that's certainly playing a role. Um, I think lung capacity gets a bit worse as you age. Um, another, um, big proportion of it, I think is that people with precondition, pre preexisting conditions, um, have done a bunch worse yeah. and older people are much more likely to have additional health issues. Um, so that might give some sense that um, a particularly healthy person in one of the older age groups um, mm -hmm. might expect outcomes that uh, look a bit different from the ones here. Yeah. Unfortunately, I still have not seen um, a break, uh, like a, a multivariate regression or a cross tabulation of the fatality rate by both age and pre-existing conditions. Uh, which would be extremely helpful to have. Um, yep. Because like, so we, let's say that you're in your 70s, but you have no heart problems, no lung problems, like no other no other health conditions. It could be that your infection fatality rate could, could be quite low. Um, but uh, unfortunately, no one has yet uh, done that analysis. That, that at, least, at least I haven't seen it yet. And then I guess a really scary other option for why the infection fatality rates get so high for people who are older um, is that we've started to hear some... Um, really scary reports about the triage decisions that doctors are having to make. Um, and one of the main ways that they make those when there aren't enough ventilators for the number of people who need, who need them sort of look at expected healthy life years going forward. And so it may be the case that young people are just 
um, getting first access to the ventilators that everybody needs to stay alive. Yeah, I guess there would be two things there that they might be considering. One is um, yeah, the number of years of healthy life that they have left, uh, but also their chances of surviving, that potentially if the chances of someone making it just drops too low, then they decide that they have to prioritize someone else who has a better shot. Yeah. Um, okay, so what do we know about uh, how it's caught? Do we, do we know more than we did a month and a half ago? My sense is that we don't know more than we did a month and a half ago. Um, so I think what we know is that um, the virus will stay on um, certain surfaces like steel for up to three days, although it becomes um, it, like degrees over that period of three days. So at the end of three days, it's going to be very little left. Um, it seems like it hangs in the air um, in an ideal laboratory condition um, up to like a th- few hours, although even there it degrades really quickly. Um, and then we can take that and then we can take, um, you know, what's known about how people have gotten sick, who their contacts have been, and sort of make some guesses. So like the best guess that we have is that most of the um, transmissions are happening through a couple of mechanisms. One of them is uh, through droplets. That's when someone coughs and the sort of droplets that come out directly land on someone else. Um, Another mechanism that seems likely to be playing a big role is fomites. And so that's when someone gets some virus particles, maybe they cough into their hand and then they touch something. Now there's just virus particles lying on that thing. Then someone else comes by, touches it. Now they have virus particles in their hand. They touch their face and they get infected. Um, So that seems like another potentially major mechanism. And then there's direct contact. Um, And so that basically means like shake hands with somebody who is sick. Um, And it's reasonably likely that they touched their face fairly recently. It's reasonably reasonably likely that you're going to touch your face after it happens. Um, And so the virus sort of gets transferred and you get sick that way. So those are the ones that we have like the strongest consensus on. Um, Other possibilities, one of them is fecal to oral transmission. There's some evidence that some of that is happening. Um, So that can happen, for example, if you're in a public bathroom, um, you flush the toilet, um, and if the seat's not closed, um, that flush can sort of um, like throw a whole bunch of like uh, microscopic aerosol particles up into the air. Um, And if some of those are dangerous, um, you're sort of exposing yourself to those. Um, And then another possibility is that some of it is going through aerosol transmission, which is when someone coughs or even maybe when someone spits um, or breathes, they sort of um, expel out little drop, like even smaller droplets of water that are able to like hang in the air for a while. Um, And those can sort of travel farther um, and last longer. Um, And so when you hear about staying six feet away from people, um, part of what's going on there is it's sort of a guess at how far those aerosols might go in case the aerosols are driving some of the infection. And then the thing that, um, I haven't seen any strong evidence, but the thing that everybody seems to believe is like very unlikely to be the case is that the virus is actually airborne in the sense that virus particles themselves just like stick in the air and stay there for like hours to days and can like fly like more than six feet. So uh, as far as we know right now, there's no reason to think that. Yeah. Uh, how um, how controversial is it, you know, that uh, just merely breathing and then someone being six feet away or I guess less than less than six feet away um, uh, that, that you can catch it that way without, you know, someone coughing? Is, is, is that 
Is uh, do many people think that that's definitely the case? Um, this feels like I'm a bit um, outside of my area of knowledge. <laughs> yeah. Um, my read on what I've heard from like the virologists and epidemiologists and doctors I follow on Twitter um, is that um, people mostly say they don't think that just being breathed on is where most of the transmission is happening. Um, but it's also just absolutely possible that, um, uh, you know, some, uh, virus is being expelled when that happens. Mm. Um, and I think nobody would be shocked to learn that, um, some substantial amount of transmission turned out to be happening that way is my read of the situation. Yeah. Okay. It seemed like uh, there's been a lot of, um, messaging around washing hands and not touching surfaces. Uh, and, and I'm, I wonder why there hasn't been more of a focus on covering up people coughing, because I think there's a, a good reasons to think that, you know, in public spaces uh, where people are moderately crowded or even say in, say, a supermarket, you know, someone coughs and then those, those droplets hang around for a while and then just people, people around you could, could pick up the illness. I suppose maybe it's somewhat harder to deal with. And, and in the West, we don't have as much of a culture of wearing face masks that might uh, help to protect against that. Uh, but I guess I, I, would, I would like to see more, more work on that, uh, because I expect people have already picked up the hand washing message quite a bit. Yeah, I don't know why it's been less of a message. I guess part of it is it might be just harder to build the habit. So it like comes yeah. out of nowhere. Um, part of it might be that like um, actually sneezing into your elbow still doesn't block all yeah. of it. And maybe it's only somewhat effective. Um, yeah, but I guess I'm not entirely sure why that is. Okay, uh, so the incubation period uh, we think is what, two to 14 days uh, with you know a handful of uh, outlier unusual cases, but typically people develop symptoms three to five days after being exposed to the virus. Is there anything to add on that? No, I think people should have five days as they're like the average in their head and they should think that like after 14 days, it's quite unlikely that someone develops it. Yeah, uh, and how long do people uh, stay stay sick for? Um, yes, we've seen lots of data on this, um, and it differs by the sample you're working with. But if you had in the back of your mind about two weeks, if your case is not severe, um, so basically if you don't end up needing to be hospitalized or need to be hospitalized, but it's like fairly minor in that category, if you're thinking two weeks around, don't be surprised if it's uh, a bit longer than that. And then severe, um, I think, can last somewhere between three weeks and six weeks. Yeah, I've seen figures suggesting that people who need intubation or pe- people who need medical assistance to help them for breathing can potentially require that for several weeks at a time, which was more than I was thinking, uh, and suggest that they're going to have potentially symptoms for a long period of time as they try to recover. That's right. Okay, that's the scene set. Um, let's move on to thinking about uh, what we uh, think people should be doing, or at least uh, the basics of what people should be doing. Uh, which in my view, um, in most places right now, certainly most places that listeners are, is self-isolation uh, to stop transmission. I basically am a supporter of everyone who can stay at home without society collapsing in their absence should be staying at home. Uh, that means no eating, no eating out, no going to clubs, no socializing in large groups, no parties. Um, the things that seem least harmful if you, if, uh, you need to uh, get, uh, get, get out or uh, not be alone is kind of walking alone uh, either outside or uh, with, in a one-on-one situation in a non-crowded area um, or meeting someone one-on-one in your house uh, without having contact with others. Uh, those have a relatively low, uh, those, those create much less of a risk of transmission than people being in crowds. Um, is there much, much more to, to, to add on that, Howie? Um, yeah, I guess I agree with everything Rob said. Um, and then just sort of want to acknowledge the reality that 
um, self-isolation is just not a possibility for lots of people, people who have to go to work, people who are doing you know, critical jobs. Um, and so I guess isolation makes it sound like a binary. Um, and what we actually most care about is um, physical distancing and social distancing. So um, you know, to the extent that you can create like fewer close contacts between you and other people by taking any of these steps, um, you're reducing the likelihood that you get sick, you're reducing the likelihood that if you get sick, you pass it on to others. Yeah. Um, fortunately, it looks like government policy is coming along to provide income support to people or relief on their rent or on their mortgage payments or, uh, or bills so that people can potentially stop working, uh, even if they um, you know, are not in a salary job where they might continue to be paid anyway. And I think that that is something that we do desperately need, that uh, you know, everyone who can stay home uh, and everyone whose society can kind of pay to stay home uh, should, should be doing that uh, at this point, at least in countries where uh, we know that the, that the virus has reached in any, in any significant numbers. And yeah, you're exactly right. It's about physical dis- distancing, uh, not, not social distancing. So if, people can, if you can uh, talk to people on Skype, get on the phone, uh, hang out with people that way, then that's completely fine. Um, it might be worth us explaining why we think it is important for people to take what might seem like a drastic step to them if they haven't been following this for, for several weeks. And I guess that's just that there's a massive, di- like if each person who has this transfers it to 2.5 other people, then it's just going to explode. The case numbers are going to explode exponentially. Uh, and the hospital system is going to be completely overwhelmed. If we manage to cut down the number of contacts that people have by 50% or 75% by getting them to mostly just stay in the house and socialize with no one or just with the same few people uh, repeatedly, then um, rather than have the case numbers explode, we can actually have uh, new cases decrease, as we've seen in some in some countries. Um, potentially, we can have the, the, the virus go into a recession in a sense, and then we can begin uh, to, to loosen up those restrictions and return to normal life, hopefully without the virus then uh, coming back and creating an enormous peak in cases that would just overwhelm the hospital system and, and society as a whole. So anything to add on that, Howie? No, that seems right to me. Yeah. So there's this, there's this interesting phenomenon that uh, you may not know many people who have caught COVID. You may not know anyone who's died of it yet. But um, we have to implement these quite stringent physical distancing measures before that happens. If we only implement them at the point when you're likely to know someone who has it or even someone who's died of it, then it will be far too late. And uh, we would have to engage in this physical distancing for a, a very long period of time. Or it could just be that it's too late for that to function, to stop the virus from spreading to uh, a vast number of people. Um, it's just the nature of exponential growth that things are picking up so fast that uh, well, yeah, the, the only way to, to maintain control is to do it while you know one in a thousand or ideally fewer people have caught the virus yet. Okay, so some other advice uh, that we might be able to offer that is um, fairly straightforward is that if you start getting symptoms of illness, you need to rest up. Um, And it's much more important than usual uh, for two reasons. One is, uh, let's say that you are getting a cold or the flu. Um, This is a really bad time to be getting that uh, for your own health because it's possible that you will then catch this other much more serious virus later and you ideally don't want to have two respiratory illnesses simultaneously. So you want to get over this initial thing if it's not COVID as quickly as possible. Secondly, um, if you do have COVID, there's a risk that it could become serious. Um, if you say just keep working or you don't rest sufficiently to, uh, to cure it or to get to, to clear the virus without having serious symptoms, then you could end up um, needing to go to hospital, end up needing medical attention. And in the current environment, if they're treating you, they may well not be treating someone else. So you're potentially imposing a huge burden 
uh, on someone else who then won't be able to get a respirator or won't be able to get medical attention uh, because you didn't stay in bed, because you didn't didn't take care of yourself. So strong recommend on uh, listening to what your mother told you when you were growing up and uh, resting uh, if, if you feel ill. I think another thing that you can do that is good for society and good for you is to stop smoking. Um, I don't know what the exact data is on whether uh, smokers uh, have higher fatality rates here. I haven't seen the latest on that, but common sense would suggest that if it's like other respiratory illnesses, uh, that smoking is going to be an aggravating factor. Um, More generally, I'm trying to get as much sleep as I can and just stay very healthy uh, so that if I do get sick, I'm starting from a better base of health. Um, And just in general, keep in mind that this is a a war scenario for society. It's a very serious issue. And, uh, you know, recklessness, uh, going out, socializing in large groups, uh, these, these are actions that seriously could kill other people and are undermining what is a collective social effort to try to control this disease and get back to normal as soon as possible. Do you have anything to add on that, Howie? I guess maybe one other thing I would add as far as um, those types of things that people can do um, or another reason why you really want to avoid transmitting a cold is, you know, you might be pretty sure that you don't have COVID. Maybe you've like um, matched up the symptoms and decided that it's very unlikely. Um, If you then use that and then start going out, um, one big risk is that you get someone else a cold and then that cold, that person is going to spend the next like two weeks wondering if they have this like much more serious disease. Um, They're potentially going to spend those two weeks isolating themselves um, so that they like uh, know for sure that they won't spread it to anyone. Um, And so just even um, if you're, if nobody gets sent to the hospital, um, the costs of getting someone else, any kind of disease have just gone way up. Yeah. I might just um, add a little bit on to the thing about uh, people who shouldn't follow those instructions. I mean, many listeners will be working in hospitals or they will be helping to deliver electricity or collecting the trash or making the water function or delivering medicine to people in hospitals or just yeah, delivering groceries and essential items to people. Obviously, those people, we, it's, it's, it's impossible for them to stay at home. Um, they're, they're like the heroes who are keeping society functioning uh, through this time. Uh, and hopefully they are getting instructions from their employer on how to to minimize the risk to them and others of, of them transmitting the disease. Uh, so uh, I suppose obviously just like trying to stay away from people and uh, in, in some high risk professions potentially are wearing masks. But uh, I guess we'll leave that to people's employers to, to offer advice on. Let's just talk quickly about what the uh, how you can try to get some idea of whether you have COVID or some other condition. I suppose... Uh, in your case, Howie, uh, you're deciding to basically play it safe and um, regardless to, to isolate yourself as, as much as possible. Um, but we do have some ideas. Uh, like, If you think you have you know, a 50% chance of having COVID on base rates, then uh, you can look at your symptoms and potentially you know, shift that estimate up a little bit uh, up and down. Uh, do, you, do you want to explain that? Yeah, sure. So um, two of the symptoms that seem to be most common um, are dry cough and fever. Um, and so that might be about when you start, you know, taking the possibility seriously that like, that's what you've got. Um, and then there are some other um, symptoms that seem to be fairly uncommon in uh, COVID relative to other similar diseases. So, um, you know, only 5% of people admitted to a hospital with COVID had a sore throat. Only 4% had a runny nose, um, 2% had diarrhea. Um, so um, if all you've got is a sore throat and a runny nose, that's a pretty good sign that you probably have something else. Um, if you've got a fever and a cough and a runny nose, 
Um, you should certainly be um, take the possibility that's COVID quite seriously. Um, but those are also pretty common symptoms. Um, the runny nose makes it a bit more likely that maybe it's something like flu, where runny noses might be more common. Um, and so that's sort of the the way that I would be thinking or thinking about like figuring out how likely you are to be sick. Um, but that said, I think being just on the cautious side because it's bad to spread any type of illness right now um, seems really important. And then the findings that we have on symptoms uh, come from a study of 100 uh, hospitalized patients. Um, so it wouldn't be shocking to me if we had fairly different beliefs uh, sometime down the road. Yeah. Um, interestingly, I started getting cold symptoms uh, a bit over three weeks ago. Uh, at the time, I estimated that there was kind of given the number of people who start getting a cold or fluy symptoms uh, just every day, uh, regardless of COVID, uh, and given the number of people who we thought were infected in the UK, I think I was a base rate of about one in 3,000 uh, that, that, I, that I had uh, had COVID. And then also my, my symptoms weren't ever a good map. So I had a runny nose and, and no fever. Uh, so that made it seem less likely. Then, uh, then just a week ago, I started getting cold symptoms again. <laughs> and by that stage, it seemed like the base rate had probably climbed potentially as high as one in 100. Uh, fortunately, again, my symptoms didn't match at all, so I don't think that I actually have have been infected. Um, fortunately, I'm I'm also isolated out here and uh, isolating myself, so fingers crossed, not not passing it to anyone else, uh, regardless of whether it is or isn't. Um, but it is interesting just how quickly this disease has spread, such that a few few weeks ago, the odds of you having it if you had these symptoms was very low, but it is ramping up incredibly quickly. All right, let's maybe talk about the situation in in different countries. Uh, I actually spend a lot of my days at the moment. Look, looking over the case confirmation numbers, the testing numbers, the death numbers for different countries to understand uh, which ones uh, have the worst situation and which ones, uh, well, the one that the thing that I'm most interested in is finding out which countries are managing to successfully contain and suppress the, the infection and potentially turn things around. So as I mentioned, I guess uh, things are very bad in Italy and Spain where they now have uh, almost a full lockdown and people are not allowed to leave their houses unless they have essential business. Those countries seem to now have less than exponential growth, which is perhaps what you'd expect if you were seeing a decrease in the number of contacts of people uh, starting you know, a week or two ago when people would have been exposed to the virus if they were now starting to get symptoms and get tested. Um, things are bad in France, Germany, and Switzerland. They're somewhat less bad in the UK, Australia, and Canada, but they're only you know days or a week behind those other countries that are in a much worse situation. So there's uh, only very limited breathing space for them to try to change things so that they don't end up uh, in, in the same situation that France, Italy, Spain, Switzerland are in now. Um, it's basically, I think, unknown uh, what the situation is in the US because the testing has been so weak. And as we mentioned, the testing in many poorer countries, many developing countries is basically completely absent. So we just don't have a clear picture at all. So anything you want to add on that, Howie? No, it seems like a good summary to me. Yeah. Okay. And then the countries that are doing well, we have China, as we mentioned, basically has suppressed the, the illness. Um, South Korea, through massive testing, seems to have brought down the number of new cases below 100 and uh, each day and held it there. Uh, Singapore uh, has a lot of testing and it also seems to have uh, kept the number of new cases each day to about 10 or 20. There's also Hong Kong, uh, which actually I don't, uh, I haven't looked at that data in the last few days, so I'm not, not quite as familiar. Uh, a lot of people mentioned Japan. I was a bit disappointed to look yesterday and see that they actually have not been testing many people. Uh, so I suspect that uh, the disease may be uh, quite a bit more widespread in Japan than is appreciated. And perhaps it's a bit of a statistical illusion that they're suppressing it as, as much as it seems. So they, they had a 5% confirmation rate from memory, but they were like relative to the number, to the population of Japan, uh, the number of tests was really quite low, uh, lower than in other places. 
Uh, so that's so that's a little bit concerning. Uh, Taiwan uh, is has done well, despite the fact that they're incredibly linked with uh, China. They had a very early response, um, manufacturing masks, uh, discouraging people from going out, doing widespread testing, doing widespread contact tracing, preventing people from uh, entering the country if they had in the last 14 days been in any region where COVID was, uh, was prevalent. And so they have managed to bring down new cases to a fairly low and constant rate. Um, so, and fingers crossed they'll be able to keep it there. Um, uh, someone was telling me that Kuwait has done a good job, uh, but I, I haven't had a chance to look at that yet. So um, that's that's something that I'll uh, hopefully hopefully get to later in the day. Yeah, are there any other good good news stories that you'd like to uh, mention, Howie? Um, I think you've gotten most of the ones that I know of. Right. So I think what we can learn from this is that if you do the right combination of policies and you're willing to pay the cost and to take action soon enough uh, and you're organized enough, uh, this disease is controllable. Uh, I think there's pretty good evidence of that now, at least for societies that you know can potentially do the kinds of things that China, South Korea, uh, Singapore, or Taiwan are, are, are doing, um, which I guess not every country can do, but I'm optimistic that places like the UK, Canada, and Australia uh, could do if they had the will and they started doing it as quickly as possible now. That seems right as like a proof of concept, but still too early to see um, how... Both I haven't seen any great measures of costliness um, to compare it to and still too early to see what happens um, as you roll it back. Mm. Um, and it's definitely a huge win if all you had to do was tough it out for like a couple of months, but gets becomes a harder call as you go from there. Yeah, there's a few ways that this could end up being mistaken. I suppose, yeah, as you mentioned, it could be that, you know, any loosening up of these restrictions means that you just get outbreaks again. And so you're kind of stuck in this constant bind where you have to keep imposing uh, high costs on people. Interestingly, in China and Singapore and Taiwan, I don't, they don't have a lockdown. They don't have lockdown conditions uh, in South Korea. Yeah, pe- people are able to move around and, uh, you know, life is continuing to a decent degree as normal. Um, so that is, uh, giving me some hope. Uh, I guess it's possible that, um, despite the fact that they're doing quite a lot of testing, they're still missing a lot of cases, uh, and it's spreading under the radar. And so it could be an illusion that, uh, that case numbers are, are as low as they are. Um, I guess, well, what other ways could this, uh, oh, I suppose it could also just be the case that these countries are exceptionally more organized than other places. And so other areas won't be able to copy them. Uh, and then potentially, I suppose, you know, somewhere like Singapore could just end up being overwhelmed by travelers from other countries bringing it in. And that could exceed their capacity at containment and suppression. Uh, and so they could end up uh, failing in the long term. Uh, yeah. So any other, any other ways that uh, kind of that lesson could end up being wrong? Um, those seem like the main risks to me. Yeah. Okay, it might just be worth me listing off again uh, the things that I'm aware um, that these successful countries have done, uh, especially the ones that were able to control cases without having a full lockdown. Um, this is something that I'm researching a lot at the moment, uh, trying to figure out uh, what, is the, what is the pattern of what successful countries have been doing. Um, so hope we might have more to say about this in a, in a future episode or at least uh, maybe in an article on our website. Uh, but basically, um, South Korea... Uh, Singapore, uh, Taiwan, they ramped up their testing capability very early uh, and very aggressively. They developed places that people could go and get tested uh, that were unlikely to then infect other people in the process of them getting there uh, and waiting for the test results and so on. So they were able to test a lot of people uh, from from an early stage. They then had mandated um, uh, home isolation for people who had um, tested positive. 
or they kept them in hospitals um, and they uh, really did enforce that and would actually find people and punish people uh, if they violated those rules. Uh, in at least some of those countries, they also would chase up people who had had exposure to people who tested positive. And then similarly, uh, on pain of a serious fine or a criminal conviction, require them to remain in their rooms where they wouldn't infect other people. Um, many of these places also increased that they stockpiled more masks uh, than other places did. Uh, and they have ramped up their production of face masks quite aggressively. I know there's some skepticism uh, among some people about the value of face masks, but there is an interesting pattern that countries that use face masks do seem to be doing better than countries that don't. That could just be correlation or coincidence. Uh, but um, yeah, the, many of these countries do seem to think that people wearing face masks uh, is, is an important aspect of their, of their control strategy. Many of them imposed uh, stronger restrictions on travel into their countries uh, from regions where there were uh, active cases of COVID demonstrated uh, from an earlier date. For example, um, Taiwan started uh, scanning people who were coming from Wuhan as early as the 31st of December um, for any cold conditions, oh, sorry, cold, uh, cold symptoms, which is well ahead of uh, what other countries, uh, you know, certainly than what the UK or US uh, were doing. It's perhaps unsurprising given how well connected they were with China. Uh, but they also cut off, uh, you know, any connections from, from Wuhan and the rest of China uh, quite a bit earlier uh, than other countries did. They also actively were tracking down people's travel history. So they were able to find out whether people uh, had been in those regions within the last two weeks and then deny them entry on that basis, whereas other countries have mostly lacked that capability. Uh, and in many places, they have also been able to use people's phone records to see who, like what phone numbers have um, had you know, GPS tracking close to their phone and then notify them immediately that they are required to stay home and self-isolate, uh, which you can imagine there's a risk that yeah, those people have been infected and then they immediately find out that someone they've met has had a positive case and then they go home and self-isolate. That does make it a bunch harder for the, for the virus to spread because uh, you're just, uh, without having to keep everyone at home, you're um, identifying most of the people who are most likely to have received the virus. Yeah, is there anything else you want to add on that, on that Howie? Yeah, so one question is, do you have a sense of how many of those countries... Um, are countries that have had recent experience with um, just like really serious respiratory illnesses, whether it's sort of SARS or whether it's MERS? Yes, all of them. So <laughs> which I may explain why they had all this infrastructure ready to go. Um, and I guess that that is um, that does suggest that it could be harder for other countries to copy. So Taiwan um, and uh, Singapore both had SARS outbreaks and built institutions and processes um, in order to prevent a repeat of that. Um, including these kinds of uh, tracking mechanisms. Um, and I guess that could have been what prompted them to stockpile more materials for this situation. Uh, and South Korea had an outbreak of MERS, although I don't know the details about that, which I think caused them to ramp up their, their testing capabilities. Um, I'm trying to think, are there, are there any others? I guess Hong Kong was affected by SARS, uh, similarly. Um, China obviously was massively affected by SARS, uh, which I guess in retrospect might have been a fortunate test run uh, that has allowed them to do what they're doing now. And then I guess one other question that I'm very confused about when I think about comparisons across countries um, is why um, the U.S. and the U.K. seem to have been so um, unable to copy the parts of those strategies that seem most un uncontroversial. Um, so, like, especially with um, rolling out testing, um, my... I mean, the stories I've read basically have South Korea just way ahead of the United States, um, having like what's seemingly unlimited drive-through testing, while the U.S. is 
barely able to test anyone and still trying to like manufacture its own tests. Um, and um, I'm wondering if you have any insight into, I guess, both what's so what's preventing the U.S. from moving more quickly, and then also like, why is it not the case that as soon as this happens, the U.S. just buys IP from South Car- from South Korea and just starts making the same tests? Yeah, I I don't understand the details of that. Uh, there does seem to be quite a big difference between the UK and Australia and the US. The US seems to be doing exceptionally poorly in this regard. The number of people testing the UK, uh, I wish it were higher, but it's at least a decent number. I think uh, 20,000, 30,000 uh, by, by, by now, um, which is, you know, uh, could be worse. Um, Australia has actually tested 80,000 people uh, when I last checked, which is um, actually quite a lot. But the US, so I'm aware of part of the problem, which was that the CDC said that they wanted to do all of the testing themselves. And then they, I think, bought a bunch of tests and then they found that they didn't work and then they tried to make their own and that didn't work. And they weren't approving anyone else to conduct tests. And unfortunately, bizarrely, during a pandemic, they have the ability to like deny anyone else the ability to do tests for the disease. My impression um, is that bit was the FDA. Oh, sorry, yes. Um, sorry. Yeah, sorry, I'm thinking of the government as a whole. But yeah, the FDA was yeah. like blocking anyone else from rolling out their tests. And I think that has only recently kind of been relaxed that they've started approving things. But it's, I mean, it's one thing I understand, you know, it's hard to run these projects to scale these things up massively. It's possible that any one institution might make mistakes. And so they don't manage to scale it up. But to forcibly, through your own like regulatory power, prevent other hospitals, other research groups that can actually test people that might save many lives and save trillions of dollars of lost GDP by controlling this thing. To use the law to prevent them from doing it just seems like an absolute barbarity to me. Uh, it made me furious. And I know I think there'll be a commission that will, uh, you know, hopefully heads will roll for this appalling decision. Uh, yeah, my initial instinct is uh, similar to yours, although I would really like to see any information at all about how um, accurate the other tests are. Um, yeah. So you can at least maybe see where someone's coming from. If you find out that like the tests in South Korea actually don't look so hot, I suspect we'll find out that they're, um, you know, actually more than sufficient. Yeah. I mean, it seems like they should be able to develop them and then roll them out. And then you should see like test after the fact in an emergency situation, then test, test later, like, are they working once, uh, yeah. once they've actually started applying it um, rather than having this like very command and control centralized mechanism, which has this one single point of failure, the CDC, that then basically just can't test people almost at all for weeks. And it's shocking. Uh, it's so much time wasted. Yeah. Um, especially, it, it seems like different labs and different manufacturing centers around the world have had different approaches to producing these tests. And you, it's impossible for anyone to know ahead of time, like which one of these is going to, you know, have the best trade-off between cost and ability to manufacture them quickly and, and, and reliability. So I think you really want lots of different groups to be trying to, to make these things. And then, uh, you know, just whoever can make the most of them start buying tons of it. Uh, but that was not the way the US was thinking about it. Right. There was, I think, a, th- a single like university research lab in um, Washington, uh, f- from memory, who managed to test more people than the entire federal government. There's a single billionaire in China who sent more tests to the U.S. than the entire like federal government has managed to provide up till now by a large fraction. Uh, so it gives you some sense of the scale of the of the failure. At least if the reporting on this is at all correct. Yeah, that's right. Um, yeah, why they? I, I expect that um, in terms of why other countries have been able to do more. Um, probably it is just like a slightly difficult technical challenge to make these tests good and then uh, and then manufacture very large numbers of them. Um, I suppose if you have not done any of the preparatory work to figure out how you would do that, but I don't know the details of, uh, yeah, I don't know the science behind it. So, Okay, so uh, I guess we've talked about some ways that um, 
countries that we're in, <laughs> countries that many listeners are in, like uh, the UK, US, and Australia, uh, why they might not be able to copy. Uh, but it does seem like I am somewhat optimistic that China, you know, which uh, has some very strong aspects of state capacity, but also some areas in which it's weaker, uh, did manage to successfully contain the disease, starting from a, what was really quite a high density of cases in Wuhan. Uh, potentially like a large fraction of the population has already uh, what, what has already been uh, effect, infected. So it does seem worth it uh, trying to, to give it a go to do that uh, rather than just, you know, allow 1% of the population to, to die. Um, and if, if we do have a, if we have a strong response now, um, then we can always decide later that it's not practical uh, and, and, and give up on that. Or we could learn from the experience of, of other countries that, you know, it doesn't, doesn't work in the long term. Uh, but if we don't act very decisively and very quickly, then the, the door for that will close uh, and we would just have to accept a very high level of fatality. Um, and of course, an enormous economic effect as well. Uh, if th- so many people are getting sick, uh, if so many people are dying, uh, I don't think, think that is going to be great for consumer confidence. <laughs> of course, having to, you know, um, having to stay at home isn't great either, but um, also just allowing very large numbers of fatality will, fatalities will bring its own massive economic repercussions as well. I'll just add that, I mean, we're talking about case studies in all these different countries, you know, Italy, South Korea, and so on. There's a Wikipedia entry on the 2020 coronavirus pandemic in X for basically every country that is affected, potentially just every country in the world uh, by this point, where you can often see a timeline of their response and you can see these nice graphs that show the increase in tests and confirmations and and, and deaths and so on. So uh, you can potentially learn about this yourself. Uh, there's nothing magical that, that we're doing here. Uh, basically, it does just require the legwork of uh, reading these things and trying to understand what's happening in each country. I guess in the story where you're able to have a really short suppression period um, and then able to like open up again afterwards and sort of from there, um, you know, like catch cases as they come up. Um, that sounds like a pretty good story to me. Um, I guess I worry about um, some worry I have is just sort of the the other possibilities. Um, so at least some governments seem to be talking like um, we are going to have these intense measures and we're trying to like wait out a vaccine. Um, and I guess I don't feel like I've seen um, a lot of folks like really look hard at how much of a talk to the economy are we really talking about here? Um, and like, who is this affecting? Like, how are they going to make it through? Um, and just sort of, um, um, you know, like really looking at that impact and asking, like, um, is it worth it to like essentially shut down the economy for like twelve to eighteen months? Um, so I don't know. Do you have any thoughts on, um, I guess, the likelihood that that ends up being what the intervention looks like? And like, does it still look worthwhile if that's what it looks like? Yeah, so obviously I haven't done all of the modeling and the cost-benefit analysis there. Uh, I guess I'm not sure that anyone in the world has uh, done that super well. I guess the, the the Imperial College London study that we'll link to uh, might come closest, but it, that was obviously very rushed out the door and there's a lot more than one could say about it. It might be worth uh, at this point kind of me mapping out uh, my view of what will happen over a longer period of time um, so we can get perhaps get an intuitive sense of how costly it will be if, if I'm right. Yep. So I think first, countries like the UK or US, where there's already widespread community tr- uh, transmission, uh, quite a lot of people have it, they're going to have to enter a suppress phase, which could last, I guess, two to five weeks, uh, which will be very costly. Uh, but the goal there is to bring the transition rate from one person to another well below one. Um, so 
then over time, the number of uh, new cases just starts coming down, potentially quite a lot. More or less, you have to do that uh, because otherwise, uh, you, if you don't, within a few weeks, your country is already going to be overrun with cases. Then we can do the phase that uh, China is in now, which I guess I'm going to call the, the release phase, which will happen potentially over one to six months, depending on how long it takes for us to learn uh, what, um, how much we can get back to normal life. And in that, you're trying to put as... So obviously during the suppress phase, we still have to keep supermarkets running. We still have to have to keep pharmacies running. We still have to keep the electricity grid running. But over the during the release phase, we'll figure out how much can we add back? How many people can go back to their offices? You know, can gyms reopen? Uh, can people start going out on the street again? Without the r naught figure, that is the number of people who catch it from each uh, affected person, uh, rising above one. If we can keep the r naught below one, then we're in a stable situation and we can just keep going. Uh, until, uh, you know, with a relatively small manageable number of cases, until we have a more serious solution to, to, to the problem. And it's going to have to involve a bunch of learning on our part, you know, uh, how, how can we still have people having contact with one another without having lots of transmission? Um, and fortunately, uh, one, one advantage that we have is that we are going to be able to learn from the experience of other countries that are several months ahead of us, countries like China. Uh, where they have been trying to figure out uh, how can they restart the economy or how can they get things somewhat back to normal without lots of transmission. So it's things like just checking people's temperature everywhere that you can so that as soon as people start showing a fever, uh, they can self-isolate and potentially go to a special clinic where they can get uh, tested quickly uh, before they pass it on to other people. Uh, we're already messaging a lot on hand washing. We're going to have to keep that up a great deal, just uh, have very high levels of uh, personal hygiene and sanitation. There's things like uh, offices should be very well ventilated because uh, um, that helps to uh, clear out the air that might have these aerosolized virus particles in it. Um, I guess I don't know how significant each of these individual things is, but uh, probably together they're, they're going to add up a fair bit. And also just massively stigmatizing people coughing in an uncovered way. Uh, that's already a little bit rude in normal times. Uh, I think in this, at this point in history, it should be viewed as uh, um, just a deadly thing to be doing uh, in, in, in public. And so the hope is by adding that, those kinds of things and then other things that we'll learn from countries like Taiwan and China, we'll be able to potentially have many, especially younger people, especially healthy people uh, who are less likely to get infected and also less likely to be killed by the virus uh, to go back to normal life. So that's one to six months period, I'm guessing. Then we enter this longer kind of muddle through period where I expect that uh, having done as much as we can to get things back to normal, we're going to have sometimes outbreaks in particular locations in cities where it turns out that we've allowed R0 to slip above one and more people to start uh, trans transmitting the virus and more people to catch it. And so we're going to end up having to do this difficult balancing act between uh, preventing outbreaks uh, and having the economy function and not having a massive depression. Um, but fortunately, over, over this time, we will likely have ramped up relevant medical training. We'll have built lots of ventilators. We'll, we'll potentially, by this stage, have partially effective treatment treatments, potentially quite effective treatments in terms of antivirals that fingers crossed we'll be, we'll be able to have manufactured a lot of. Hopefully the testing capability issues that we've had over the last month or two will have resolved by then and we'll be able to have many more tests, test far more people and get the results much more quickly. And so that will potentially all make it easier to uh, control outbreaks where they occur in particular locations. We might even have in countries like the UK figured out this <laughs> mechanism for you know texting everyone who's had exposure to someone who ends up getting diagnosed. Uh, that sounds that sounds like a technically complicated thing to to do, but six months maybe if we really focus on it, we can do it. Um, and so, and through all of this time, we're going to have you know people researchers working incredibly hard, many labs converting over to working on a coronavirus vaccine, uh, to working on testing antivirals to figure out which existing antivirals are most effective. And that, fingers crossed, will last 
only six to 18 months before we um, either get a vaccine or very effective antivirals uh, that do effectively um, mean the disease is, is uh, rarely deadly. Um, or potentially uh, we now have kind of so many ventilators and uh, we've scaled up other treatments so well that um, we can relax and allow many people to become infected without freaking out too much. Um, so that gives you some idea of the, the scale of the effort that we're, in, that we're talking about here. Uh, and I don't know whether that is more of an economic cost than most people expected or, or less. Uh, we're in for a pretty rough economic ride regardless, as I was saying earlier. Um, and finger, uh, my, my hope is that this is the, the least damage uh, view or the least damage approach. How likely do you think it is that during the like release phase, we're going to see something that makes us decide that like this plan just isn't that viable? Uh, well, we might well have a decent idea before we even get there because we'll find out whether South Korea has been able to maintain control for more than a month. Um, uh, I guess maybe one in three. Uh, I, I guess I'm somewhat optimistic that uh, you know, if, if we keep like a third of people who most don't need to go back to work at home and then the other and other people are doing everything they can, hopefully, you know, out of fear of their own lives, quite literally, to avoid catching this virus, uh, that we will be able to keep our naught at a sufficiently low level. Uh, perhaps I'm just naively optimistic, but I guess I, have, I don't feel like I've been naively optimistic about most other things so far. <laughs> that seems absolutely true. <laughs> do, do, do you have a more pessimistic take? Um. I guess um, I think that there is a world in which um, countries like the U.S. and the U.K. and Australia are able to um, maintain very low levels of virus for a long time. Um, I'm, I guess, I think probably like a bit more worried than you that it requires staying in a situation that's similar to the suppressed phase for um, a fairly long time. Okay. That like, I'm pretty unclear on whether or not we're going to be able to sort of start opening things up um, and not have it just sort of like shoot up to another um, outbreak again. And countries have shown the ability to do it. Um, if you do enough, I mean, if you lower the cases enough, then you're able to just track every contact of anyone who does have it. Um, and you sort of, are able to um, really cut down outbreaks that way. Um, but whether or not um, uh, these countries in particular can do it successfully, I think I'm like a bit more worried. Okay, yeah, interesting. Okay, so I guess a few responses to that. One is that uh, even if we do end up abandoning this kind of long-term strategy, uh, flat, like, like doing the suppressed thing now and then trying to flatten the curve uh, does still save quite a lot of lives because in the meantime, we can potentially have manufactured some more antivirals and some more uh, ventilators and have some more ability to, you know, treat people without uh, other people catching it. So, you know, every, every day of delay is very costly, but even if we don't achieve, you know, achieve a total victory, uh, it can still be quite useful. I guess also we, we do always have the option of giving up this plan. So I guess the Imperial College London study tried to do kind of a comparison of a more mixed strategy, which was you know, just ask people to stay at home. Sometimes uh, just do some control mechanisms, try to reduce the rate of transmission so not everyone gets it at once. Comparing that approach uh, with what I'm kind of describing here and concluded that there was a net benefit to doing what I was describing given their current estimates of how bad things are in countries that didn't do that, that like Italy versus, you know, uh, how, how unlikely is it to work. 
Um, but it could be that we de- we decide that actually uh, the flatten the curve approach, that kind of middle ground, is the least harmful option. Um, but uh, it's kind of a one way one way street. If we if we go for that, I think we're not going to be able to turn back the clock and take the approach that I'm describing. But the reverse isn't true. We we, we maintain the optionality as long as we go hard now. Yep, I think that's a great argument that overall I'm convinced by um, for the um, uh, approach that at least starts with suppression is um, we should at least see if people have the um, appetites, like really bring this down to near zero. And then we should at least see what happens when um, you know, we start releasing some restrictions. Um, and um, yeah, you always have the option value to like move back from that. Um, but it um, seems just premature to see like several different countries being so successful mm. and then to decide there's no way we can possibly do that. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So uh, just to give a sense of um, what would happen if we if we did nothing, the, the ICL study suggested that you know to reach natural herd immunity would need 50 to 70 percent or something of the population to end up catching catching the illness. And if we did nothing to control its spread right now, uh, they were saying a critical care bed demand uh, would be over 30 times greater than the maximum supply in the US or the, or the UK, which means that, as we were saying, effectively nobody who needs medical treatment will be able to get it. And they then they estimated that about half a million people would die in the UK, which is about 0.75% of the population uh, and about the same in the, in the US. Uh, but of course, it could be quite a bit less or more than that. I wish I knew actually whether that was a, a mean or kind of expected value or a median value, because it could be that the mean is quite a bit higher than the median in this case, uh, but I couldn't see that quickly. Yeah, I'm not sure either. So I guess if I wanted to make the argument uh, against this uh, approach, maybe I would say, uh, even if you manage to delay it for a long time, you, you'll have this inevitability of it kind of bouncing back potentially in, a, in an even worse way in kind of the next flu season and suggest that it's unlikely that we'll have good treatments by then. Um, I guess that maybe that's just another spin on uh, kind of the thing that you were saying that it's just too costly to maintain the level of suppression necessary for for such a long period of time. Is the reason that you get a bounce back in another flu season? Are you saying a year from now we still won't have a vaccine, or are you saying like it'll turn out that like you just can't build a vaccine a vaccine against this, or like what does that look like where you get the bounce back? Yeah, so I think. Um, a situation that looks quite bad in the modeling and that has troubled some people is what if we pay all these costs for you know, doing suppression now and then come next flu season, we haven't really made progress on antivirals or a vaccine. We haven't, haven't gotten there yet. Um, but during flu season, we have kind of a maximum rate of transmissibility of this thing. Plus we have normal flu and all of the other kind of respiratory illnesses going around at the same time, increasing the fatality rate. Um, and then at that point, we just find that we can't control it sufficiently. Um, yeah. It could be then we've paid an enormous cost now for, to basically just delay something that we could have uh, allowed to happen now anyway. Yeah. Um, I think that is trumped by these other considerations, uh, but I suppose that's the way that things end up going particularly badly. Yeah, that makes sense. Uh, one thing we might add is that uh, it seems like there's quite a bit of optimism about us finding antivirals that would reduce the symptoms of uh, the illness, that there's uh, many, many trials going on with uh, coronavirus patients all around the world. Uh, trying to repurpose existing drugs that interfere with viral replication that people think might affect uh, COVID. Uh, And they're already showing some fairly uh, promising signs. And I think it's not unusual for antivirals to have uh, usefulness across different different kinds of viruses. Um, Arguably, we already have kind of found some tolerably good treatments. Um, But I suppose we won't won't know until we see replications and things like that and uh, kind of longer term outcomes. Actually, one, one argument we haven't made is that we don't currently know 
uh, how many people who survive um, the disease end up having long-term problems with their health, uh, things like um, chronic fatigue syndrome or uh, you know, long, uh, problems with um, damage to their, to their lungs that potentially lower their quality of life for years or decades. Uh, and that's something else that we will have a clearer picture of in a couple of months' time and where we might be glad that we did the suppression thing. And so if, if we see that, in fact, the disease is worse than we thought, uh, we can continue to pay our high price to control it. Uh, um, whereas obviously we, even if we find that out later, if we, if we haven't controlled it now, then, uh, that, that option will have disappeared. That's a good point. Yeah. Uh, I might just talk very quickly about some economic things, given that I'm an economist, uh, I suppose we don't want to focus on this too much, but there's actually surprising, um, agreement among economists, I think on what the government needs to be doing right now. Um, at least the economists that I'm reading are in favor of doing a lot to, uh, to stop the virus. I have, I actually, economists tend to be the kind of people who would bite the bullet and say, well, plenty of people need to die because just the cost will be too great to prevent it. But I haven't seen much of that uh, from economists that, that, that I'm reading anyway. There's widespread agreement that we need like interest rate, central banks to slash interest rates, which they've already done. Um, potentially like rent and mortgage holidays, as we mentioned earlier, um, and sick pay actually. So many countries don't have mandatory sick pay. So you have this terrible scenario where so someone working in hospitality, someone preparing food has to go to work even though they're sick, um, which is which is a nightmare. And uh, we, in countries that don't already have mandatory sick pay or some system to allow sick people to pay their bills while remaining at home, uh, we need to basically be immediately sending those people cash. Um, potentially tax employ, uh, holidays for employers. So uh, because many businesses are going to face uh, severe cash flow issues here um, and the government can potentially borrow uh, and just like lend the money um, effectively by not not requiring them to pay tax and thereby keep them afloat and kind of not destroy the the structure of organized production that has been created here that will be very costly to put back together at the other end if we don't preserve it now. Many economists, including economists who tend to be more conservative, uh, not be in favor of the government just sending people money, currently think that the government should be sending people money uh, right now, just immediate cash infusions in people's bank accounts so that they can stay home. Expectations in the market of how much inflation we're going to have uh, have fallen dramatically everywhere because they people think that uh, consumers like you and me are just not going to be spending very much money uh, any anytime soon because we're so freaked out. And so potentially to get inflation back to where people expected it to be uh, so that we don't uh, place kind of a crushing uh, burden on people who've borrowed money with previous expectations of their revenue and what, what prices would be, potentially those... Um, those cash injections into people's bank accounts should be wholly or partly newly printed money uh, to try to just get more money in the system so you have more more nominal spending. Um, I guess, is there any, anything I'll say? Oh, I guess a more extreme measure that uh, many countries are taking, including the UK, that I think many people would support is just emergency loans to solvent businesses so or otherwise solvent businesses. So airlines are going to take an enormous hit right now. Um, but presumably we do want airlines to exist at the other end of this. And it seems like many of them are just not going to be able to continue unless they get some kind of emergency financial assistance. I'm not sure exactly the extent to which you should take that, but, uh, it does kind of make sense to me, uh, that given that governments in many places can borrow for next to nothing, sometimes they're even being paid to borrow that they should do things to kind of ensure that businesses that have very complicated internal structures that would take decades to put back into place uh, don't go under because of kind of contracts they signed before this huge shock. Uh, do you have anything to add to that, Howie? I agree with everything that you said, and I think you got most of it. Um, I guess something that is, that I think it was less of an economic intervention, but might be some of one, is that um, there actually are like huge supply needs at the moment um, where we just 
desperately need um, to be manufacturing ventilators, to be manufacturing um, PPE. Um, and so um, you can imagine if people are ending up like sent home from their factories, like except that any of those can be retooled to like do this type of work. Um, secondary effect is like um, keeping people on their jobs. Yeah. So there's going to be, yeah, potentially an enormous sudden restructuring that we need. So restaurants in many places are just going to be closed for quite some time. Uh, but fortunately, <laughs> um, there's going to be a lot of people who still want to um, eat food from restaurants. And so we're going to need lots of delivery drivers all of a sudden, uh, many more than we needed previously. People are not going to want to go to the supermarket. So we need just tons of people figuring out some way to allow, say, one expert who knows how not to infect themselves, who's wearing a mask, uh, to go around and do shopping for many, many households. Um, uh, Amazon said that they're going to hire 100,000 new people uh, to deal with the increasing demand for, uh, I guess, yeah, shopping not in actual shops. <laughs> uh, so uh, although many people aren't, are going to lose their jobs temporarily and we need to adapt to that, there will be opportunities for some people to go and take what are incredibly important roles that help to stop the pandemic. Uh by yeah, preventing uh, allowing people to not leave their houses as much as as much as much as possible. So uh, potentially, listeners could be among those those people. Okay, so now that we've given a bit of an outline of where things currently stand, um, we want to talk through a bunch of things that listeners and general people can actually do to contribute. Rob, you want to talk through the first couple of things? Yeah, this is something that I wish uh, we had spent more time on already. Uh, we, we have some ideas, but uh, many of these are somewhat speculative. So people should kind of use their own minds and take it with a pinch of salt and also stay up to date on ways that uh, this could have been mistaken. Uh, I suspect that we'll have future episodes where we discuss some of these options, perhaps in, in more detail. Um, I guess that the first obvious one is to just share information to get everyone to take the threat as seriously as, uh, we th- as we'll come across in this episode. We, we think that people should be. Um, most of my friends, uh, at least most people who uh, read my work, I think are aware of that this is an extremely serious situation and we're at war and, you know, being asked to uh, stay at home uh, if you're not an essential worker uh, is a reasonable price to pay uh, to prevent what would be just a catastrophe. Uh, but many people who don't read the news, don't read Twitter, don't listen to this podcast, uh, this is perhaps coming as a bit of a shock to them and they may not be as familiar with pandemic, like how pandemics function and exponential growth. And they may only have learned about this for the first time a few days ago. And for them, it's very hard, I think, to adjust their expectations very quickly to real, to go from thinking that they're about to go on holiday, say <laughs> they're about to go on their trip to, to Italy, uh, to realizing that maybe they can't leave the house for several weeks. It's quite, uh, it's quite surprising. <laughs> and it's not, it's not surprising to me so much because I've been following this since late January. It's not so surprising for us because we've been paying a lot of attention. But uh, if you have family and friends who are in that situation who have not yet realized the, um, the, yeah, the dire situation that we're in in many places, uh, having one-on-one conversations with them to explain all of the above and passing them this episode potentially uh, could save their lives and could do a lot of good. And that's something that can scale up to almost everyone can contribute to this effort. Something that you can potentially add into that is there's a bunch of pledges going around online uh, where people sign up to uh, you know meet do particular things like always wash their hands, <laughs> cover their face in public, uh, to, to self isolate in as much as it's practical given kind of their health and professional concerns. Um, one uh, that I've signed up to is the Stand Against Corona pledge. I believe it's standagainstcorona.com or, or .org, and you can potentially sign that pledge and then share that with people on, on social media. Um, I've been very active on social media trying to <laughs> try to convince people to, to take this to take this seriously. 
Um, do you know uh, what you've pledged to do? Uh, yeah, I, I actually do. I can uh, I can find bring that up. Okay, yeah. Uh, so uh, it's standagainstcorona.org, and I've pledged to clean my hands. So I wash my hands with soap often for at least twenty seconds, and if soap's unavailable, I'll use hand sanitizer that contains at least sixty percent alcohol. Uh, to cover my mouth. So I'll use my elbow or a tissue to cover coughs and sneezes, uh, then throw out the tissue and wash my hands. I'll keep my distance, so I'll stay home where I reasonably can. Uh, and when I do go out, I'll try to limit contact with others. And finally, uh, to care for others. So I'll call and emotionally support people I know who are isolated or vulnerable. Uh, when I share information about uh, COVID-19, I'll do it without contributing to uh, panic or stigma. Uh, those are the four things. Uh, I mean, one one could go further. Uh, it's not uh, it's not the most extreme pledge that, that one could make about this, uh, but it seems... Uh, Seems pretty reasonable uh, to me. So, somewhat easy for me because I plan to be out in the country far away from other humans. <laughs> so it's not, not so onerous. Um, but uh, yeah, I think that's something that uh, would be sensible for most people to, to agree to do. That sounds right to me. Another idea that I just had earlier today, um, something. so we've been trying to think of ways that people can contribute. And there's sometimes very high, very impactful ways that people with very specific skills can contribute to. Obviously, for example, if you're a vaccine researcher, maybe you should work on a vaccine for this condition. You probably know who you are and have thought of that already. Uh, if you're an expert on running trials for antivirals, uh, then those those two things probably seem like the highest leverage pieces of work uh, that are available in the entire world. But of course, they're not something that just randoms can, can jump into. They're something that you almost certainly need specialized equipment and training in order to be able to do at all. But something that many people can do uh, I think is contact celebrities uh, around the world and get them to post on social media to create little videos explaining why it's very important to stay home, potentially explaining uh, you know the, these issues with exponential growth and what a huge difference uh, physical distancing can make. Uh, one way that I was thinking of organizing this is uh, many celebrities now are getting diagnosed uh, with COVID. Uh, and if each one of those then made a video explaining how important it is to, to control the illness or if they were you know asked by their followers or emailed um, asking them to produce videos, then that could help to create kind of a constant stream of reinforcement for people. Uh, and I guess in particular, some you know some kinds of celebrities will reach people that uh, this this show doesn't reach. Uh, if you have movie you know movie stars, uh, singers, uh, people who are on television uh, regularly uh, talking about this, that could potentially cut through to a broader fraction of the population than you can get uh, through Twitter or, or newspapers and so on. Do you have any thoughts on that? Arnold Schwarzenegger has a. Uh public service announcement going around telling people to stay home that features his pet uh, pony and his pet donkey. Um, so uh, Arnold at least is on our side. Yeah. Uh, and it's silly, but I think that that stuff really helps. That stuff like gets shared. That stuff like um, is like popular across audiences. Um, and yeah, so I think it'd be great to have more of that stuff. Yeah, Mel Brooks did a viral video today, and they're they're reaching enormous audiences, <laughs> potentially more people than a than a dire press conference with uh, with Boris Johnson does <laughs> every day. Uh, so, um, if you're in a position to just you know find the uh, emails for these celebrities uh, or their publicists and so on, or just like message them wherever you where you can get access, including I guess mid tier celebrities, honestly, given that we would love to just have as many people do this as possible, uh, then that's something that many listeners would be able to do if they can't find something else. Moving on, I guess, uh, so we've talked about vaccines and antivirals, that that's probably the obvious thing to do uh, if you're someone who knows how to. Uh, but something else that a wider range of people can do, I think, is write up reports on what methods seem to be working in other countries. Uh, it's a bit surprising uh, to me, but I have not seen very much analysis of this. I have not seen many people doing, you know, calling up people in Taiwan, uh, even just ordinary people or, you know, people with some exposure to the health system there to try to write up reports in detail of what they've done and what they believe works. Uh, and there's, I guess, a lot of issues that 
there's sometimes just not very many contacts between you know the country that you're in uh, and the countries where uh, things are, things are going well. Uh, and it is there's, there's a bit, bunch of legwork understanding exactly what they did when uh, and digging into the, the the data to find out whether it's being controlled as well as it appears. Uh, there's some subtlety here, but I think. Uh, this is something that if you're the, a kind of a research analyst who might be doing research in a bank or in a government, uh, then this is something that you probably can do from home. Uh, and then publicizing that work or merging it with the work of others uh, to produce a clearer picture um, seems like it could be could be quite helpful. Yeah. And on a lot of these cases, I've had trouble Googling like decent reports on what exactly made um, South Korea so successful. And I don't know if it's the case that there just aren't reports or if none of them are in English. Um, so yeah, if you speak um, another language, going through um, and seeing if you can find sources that are good, reliable descriptions of what policies put were put in place and like which ones worked, which ones didn't in various countries seems particularly valuable. Yeah, there's a real challenge here that um, governments are trying to put in place so many things very quickly um, they're absolutely run off their feet. The kind of pe- the people who would maybe ordinarily be sitting down and doing this kind of research to figure out uh, you know, what should happen over a period of months don't have the time to do it. Uh, so there is a role for other people to kind of collect this information and distill it in conversations outside of these institutions and then, uh, I guess, pass it on to, to people or just have it become conventional wisdom in such a way that then informs policymakers who otherwise just don't have the time to do the analysis themselves. It's a, it's a, it's a pretty un- unusual situation. Um, but this is for, it's kind of work that a think tank uh, might be able to do, for example, and would be doing it in ordinary times. Uh, and that becomes even more essential when uh, so many people are trying to do implementation of policy and don't have very much time to think about uh, what the policy should actually be. Um, so, yeah, if you're someone who speaks South Korean or you have friends who speak South Korean who can translate lots of materials and then you can try to summarize them, I think that that could be very helpful. And, and this this work needs to be done kind of in each country somewhat separately. Uh, so the fact that, say, there's materials in uh, in the UK, perhaps, that will end up describing what is working well in South Korea, that doesn't mean that the French government is going to be picking it up. Uh, someone else probably in Paris is going to have to do that legwork themselves as well. D- does, does that sound right, Howie? There's a sense in which it seems a little bit crazy for this to be the case, but I, I do think that that, that that is the situation. Um, that's at least my impression. Um, I think there might be some challenges with, like, you write up your thing, how does it funnel up to like actually being seen by folks? Um, but I think if people do a good enough job, um, there is really a, a reasonable chance of helping out with this type of, type of thing. Yeah, well, one thing you can do having written a report like that, um, so you want to publish it online and keep it up to date, and then you can integrate it into the Wikipedia article uh, about the country's response, uh, trying to you know, at a section that interprets, you know, uh, how well, how good a job have they done of containing the virus in various different weeks and what they were doing at those times. Um, the, the current Wikipedia articles on the pandemic outbreaks in each country are fairly good, but they lack that kind of deeper analysis, um, which I think uh, would be helpful. And I'm sure that, you know, many people in government are reading the same kind of materials that we are to try to make sense of this. Um, so uh, ma- making them, making sure that they're accurate uh, and sophisticated would be would be very helpful. And just making, perhaps making sure that there's a link in the Wikipedia article to the best analysis out there uh, on, on, on that interpretation. Yep. There's another thing to add is, uh, you know, if you're someone, if you're a retired doctor, perhaps, or you're someone who has medical experience, uh, but isn't currently practicing medicine, uh, there may well be roles uh, for you um, in scaling up the provision of treatment if um, the pandemic does run out of control. There's complications here because potentially maybe you don't have the relevant training uh, and you could end up doing things incorrectly 
or uh, or being potentially a burden on colleagues if, say, they need someone to run ventilators and you don't know how to do that. Uh, so, you know, apply your common sense and some care. But I know that, uh, you know, many healthcare systems are asking people to come out of retirement um, and they are asking, say, you know, dentists to come across uh, who have like substantial medical training and do things outside of dentistry in order to help with uh, with this crisis. Um, so I guess, yeah, use <laughs> use your brain and figure out whether there, there could be a role for you there. Yep. Um, that sounds right. And then I guess one particular constraint that we're going to um, run up against, as we've said a few times, um, is having enough ventilator capacity for everybody who needs them. Um, and so one version of that is having enough of the machines. Um, and it seems just incredibly urgent that the um, manufacturers who are already making these, that the government just use anything possible to um, pay them to scale up. Um, and if there are factories that could be um, converted into making these, that also sounds great. Um, it's a little hard to just uh, become, um, you know, like a, a, a manufacturer doing uh, ventilators um, sort of on the spur of the moment. But people have started putting some effort into making, um, you know, scrappy alternative ventilators, um, finding alternative options like um, supplying O2, um, using O2 concentrators, which like um, uh, might not be as good, but might be better than nothing. Um, if you do any of this, you have to be incredibly cautious because um, it is really easy to hurt someone by doing any of this wrong. Um, but um, to the extent that you are an engineer and know what you're doing and have some experts involved you can work with, um, then getting the machinery in the hands of people who know how to use it um, seems like maybe a win. And then the other big constraint is going to be um, the people who know how to use it. And they're not easy devices to use. Um, and I've seen some models saying that the actual bottleneck is not going to be on the machines. It's going to be on staff who know how to use them. Um, so right now, honestly, like I don't have the experience to know how one might get trained to be able to use a ventilator. Um, and, um, I think you really want to avoid sort of like flooding in to busy people and sort of like making tons of asks, um, to like find ways to help out. But if there's somebody out there who would have the capacity to train tons of people to, um, use ventilators, um, you know, I don't know what all the like details and sticking points would be, but it would be great if somebody was thinking that through and seeing if there's a way to do that. Yeah. I, from what I think we've both heard, uh, operating a ventilator to protect someone who's you know, uh, at risk of death uh, is, is quite complicated. This is not by any means simple. This requires not only, say, someone to have nursing training, they have to have ICU nursing training doing this specifically. So if you're the kind of person who is, you know, close enough that uh, you might be able to learn how to do this within a reasonable time frame, you probably you, you probably already know that. Uh, so this would be, you know, someone who's a practicing nurse, perhaps who, uh, you know, never particularly learned to use a ventilator, uh, hasn't worked in an ICU yet, but feels like they could they could pick it up quite quickly. Um, or someone who has, you know, done this in the past, but uh, but needs to, to to take a refresher. Uh, yeah, my impression that there are quite a lot of groups working on trying to figure out. Well, firstly, to scale up. Um, production of existing ventilator existing ventilator designs, but also find other ways of repurposing normal materials to to make uh, makeshift ventilators. It, it almost looks like uh, I guess you were saying these models suggest that that side is going to be sufficiently successful that the tricky part is going to be training enough people to operate them, uh, which seems uh, pretty pretty plausible. Um, yeah, there's and another downside that you mentioned is that if we bring back retired workers, they're especially vulnerable to catching the illness, and uh, 
uh, and potentially dying of it. Um, so uh, this is something that I think we'll look into more to understand better who might be able to do this, uh, who, who can we kind of recommend uh, t- take a greater interest in this and is it actually a good idea on, on, on balance. And just on the oxygen supply thing, uh, apparently the issue there is that oxygen supply isn't as good as full ventilation, uh, but uh, one medical professional can uh, can help several people uh, access just concentrated oxygen uh, in a way that one person can't run multiple ventilators. Uh, so, th- so in as much as the bottleneck ends up being uh, access to staff, then uh, that's one way that you can supply something that might just be good enough uh, for many people um, with yeah without having to occupy so many so many um, so many medical professionals. Speaking of the issue of um, people, you know, medical staff catching, uh, catching uh, COVID, um, another approach that people could take, um, which requires some expertise, but potentially not full expertise, is to work on um, personal protective equipment uh, to try to find ways that uh, we can scale up production of those or repurpose materials uh, to have you know, face masks that maybe aren't optimal, but uh, you know, reduce transmission rates somewhat uh, or, you know, uh, find ways to make more gloves, all, all of these kinds of things. Um, is, do you have anything to, to add on that, Howie? I, I saw that I saw one group that was uh, working on this um, today, um, but I haven't yet looked into them. So we'll stick up a link to that, at least if it, if it looks any good. Um, I suppose another thing we mentioned last time uh, that could be quite useful is finding ways of taking personal, uh, personal protective equipment that's been used and cleaning it or uh, deactivating any viruses on the, on the surface uh, such that it could be used again safely. Uh, of course, like a lot of risks there, if you do that inappropriately, um, like one, one option, for example, would be heating. Uh, another might be UV, but then you need to make sure that you aren't destroying the property of the, of the materials themselves that, that is protecting you. Um, but that's something that, you know, someone with relevant engineering or manufacturing experience, uh, might be able to, to get into. Yep. That sounds right. Um, another thing which we've talked about a little bit, um, is just helping to teach people um, how to avoid contracting the illness and how to avoid passing it on. Um, and I don't know, depending on exactly what your social network looks like, um, I think mine personally is just like overloaded and saturated with messages about washing your hands. Um, but that doesn't mean that everyone else's is. Um, and so figuring out which of your like relatives, which of your friends um, you know, might not know best practices and having a conversation with them about um, uh, hygiene um, seems like really valuable. If you find ways to scale that, that seems like more valuable still. Yeah, that seems that seems right. I guess it would also be helpful to have people in our you know broader social network uh, trying to interpret the evidence that, that's out there on you know wh- how are colds and flus and potentially this virus as well uh, most often transmitted. I found it surprisingly hard to figure. It's possible that we just don't know, but you know what fraction is transmitted through surfaces, what fraction is transmitted through coughing. Uh, you know uh, how reliable is um, hand sanitizer for um, cleaning people's hands if they don't have access to to soap and water? Um, there's a bunch of basic facts here that uh, um, you know it would be great to have people, I guess, pouring through the literature, uh, making sense of that if they have the relevant research ability. Um, yeah, I've often come into situations where I understand that there's no risk that there's no research on COVID nineteen in particular, um, and then sort of. I'm hoping that there will be research on like, what's a reasonable prior to have for a respiratory virus in general. Um, and often at least like I personally with like the lack of background I have often can't find that type of thing, but it would be something that's really informative. 
Yeah, that suggests that the the bar might be moderately high that someone might have to have <laughs> scientific or medical training. Yeah. Um, but I guess lots of lots of listeners do have that. I guess another thing that uh, many people can potentially contribute to is um, helping people who they know who become sick uh, or are otherwise vulnerable to maintain physical distancing just in practical terms. So going and doing shopping for them or collecting their medical supplies um, or, or helping people out financially. That's one that we didn't mention that many people are going to have flash uh, cash flow issues here. You know, friends and family of yours might struggle to, to make ends meet uh, if they're uh, becoming unemployed um, or, you know, uh, you know, aren't getting paid right now if they were on casual hours. Um, and if I, obviously there's issues lending money any, at any point to, to friends and family, uh, but it seems like this is a particularly potentially good act right now. If you can ensure that someone is able to remain at home rather than go out and infect other people by lending the money in the hope that they'll be able to pay you back, uh, when things return to normal, uh, that is a, that, that's a very kind thing to do. Uh, another quick one is, uh, I've been trying to look into, you know, is there a threat? to food security uh, in places like London uh, or in places like San Francisco? Um, is there a risk that supermarkets won't be able to supply food? My best, uh, my, the best evidence I've been able to get is no, that um, people uh, in the area do believe that food security uh, is, is, remains high, that there's not going to be a shutoff of trade of food uh, between countries and that the, um, the supply chains and the logistics are still working quite well. And the only reason that they're out of uh, stock right now is just that people have basically tons of stock has been transferred from supermarkets to people's houses and pantries, but that things will return to normal uh, in, in due course. Uh, nonetheless, I, I personally am doing everything I can to avoid wasting food right now. Uh, I think like in as much as we have already during this, during this disaster situation, managed to get food from the farm into people's houses, uh, we should not be squandering it. Uh, because um, we are a bit unsure what the future holds, um, and we ideally don't want to. Ha- we want to have as few people having to do that work as possible, um, which we which we achieve if we don't throw out food. Yeah, is there anything else to add on how people can contribute? Hopefully, I think we'll have more to say on this, and certainly more to write about this uh, on on the website in in coming weeks. I'm all out at the minute. <laughs> Sounds good. All right. Well, get emailing your celebrity friends, everyone. I guess actually one thing in the bigger picture that that we can add. Um, is we just this week published uh, our Global Catastrophic Biological Risks Problem Profile, uh, which is a new, uh, fairly long and detailed article about how you could potentially contribute to preventing very bad pandemics from um, uh, from affecting humanity and taking it off track. Uh, the focus is on pandemics that are even worse than, than COVID-19, uh, pandemics that don't just threaten to kill 1% of the population, but could kill 10 or 50% of the population. And those, while they're somewhat unlikely, are just not that much less likely uh, than what we're seeing now with, with COVID-19. Uh, we're in some ways fortunate that COVID-19 isn't, doesn't have an even greater virulence and doesn't kill a larger fraction of, of, of people. Uh, so I can definitely recommend uh, reading that. And we're going to have an interview with, uh, with the author of that article, uh, Greg Lewis, uh, hopefully coming out uh, pretty, pretty, pretty soon. Is there anything that we should say about how society could have better prepared itself for this situation, Howie? I suppose I've been complaining about this on my social media feeds. <laughs> yeah, I guess it depends, um, you know, at what kind of time period you're thinking of. Um, so, I mean, um, I think that there's been a problem um, for decades where um, being prepared for a pandemic um, is just, I think, one of the most valuable functions that a government can play. Um, There's just nobody else who's going to be in a place um, to really be like pouring resources in advance um, to try to get us prepared. Um, And so everything from work to um, 
detect um, uh, new outbreaks earlier on, even detect them in animal populations before they've transmitted over to humans, to um, building like better diagnostics, to like coming up with faster processes to get from uh, recognizing a novel uh, uh, pathogen to like having a vaccine. Right now, we think that's 12 to 18 months. That's just sort of unacceptable. We knew that that was unacceptable 10 years ago. Um, and there's work being done by it, um, on it by like incredible people and um, governments certainly fund it. But um, I think that at basically every point, um, there were tons of opportunities where it was clear more resources can make a difference. Um, and we never quite had enough. I think often there's a problem where this type of thing will get attention right after an outbreak. And there will be a bunch of changes that are geared especially towards um, like uh, something that will be useful for that outbreak in particular. Um, so we get lots of better Ebola diagnostics after the Ebola outbreak. Um, but it's hard to sustain funding for things like platforms for, in general, manufacturing or researching and developing vaccines more quickly because you can't picture the way that will help. But as we've seen, um, uh, when a novel virus comes out of nowhere, like those are the times where you're most at risk. So it's really important to have the sort of flexibility to um, be able to respond to those. Um, so yeah, so on a sort of uh, years to decade scale, um, I think that there's a lot that we could have done to prepare earlier. Yeah, definitely. Um, there's a there's a lot more to say about that um, that we did, that we do say in the um, episode seventy, um, Dr. Cassidy Nelson on the twelve best ways to stop the next pandemic uh, and limit COVID nineteen, and we have uh, three other episodes uh, from from a couple of years ago, including one with you, Howie, uh, where we talk about what society could have done uh, to to prepare. Um, and this is going to be an incredibly hot area, I think, in years to come. Uh, we're going to see a lot more money flowing into public health, a lot more money flowing into pandemic preparedness. So uh, this could potentially be a problem that we should see many listeners flow into uh, to fill those roles and to make as big a contribution as they can to make sure that we never face this situation again. Um, so seriously, yeah, if, if you're at a crossroad in your career or not sure what you want to do, uh, this is something you should seriously be considering doing, I think, because there's going to be many different angles, economists, medical people, social scientists, people in government, policymakers, uh, you know, advocates, all of these, all of these roles potentially uh, can help to control uh, pandemics uh, go going forward. Um, and yeah, we will have, we will have more content to talk not only about COVID now, but, but, but the bigger picture for, for pandemic control in future, uh, just giving a narrower focus for, for one second. I started getting worried about COVID-19 around 20th, 20th of January. And I think you were the same. Admittedly, we yeah, have like, right. we have some expertise in this area. We come the kind of person who's read several books about pandemics. So perhaps not typical. Uh, but I was already stockpiling food on the 27th of January and hand sanitizer as well. Um, yeah. And I think, yeah, you were in the same situation. Uh, I think I have been incredibly frustrated that public health professionals, that people, epidemiologists, that governments did not tell people to do this sooner. Um, I understand that they're concerned about inducing panic, but we were able to see, you and I, like, we're not super experts on this. We're only like moderate experts and we weren't, we had other jobs to do. We were doing this only part-time. We could see that there was a decent chance that exactly what has happened might happen. Uh, and presumably there are some people in government who knew this, some experts who knew this, the alarm could have been sounded a lot sooner and we could have had five extra weeks to prepare, five extra weeks to stockpile food, five extra weeks to manufacture more hand sanitizer, five extra weeks to make more ventilators, five extra weeks to train people to use the ventilators, five extra weeks to figure out what the policy should be if things got to where they are now. 
Um, work was done in that time, but I think a lot less than could have been done uh, if we had had you know, just the forecasting ability to think a month or two ahead and to think about probabilities and expected value. Uh, and this is another area where I think we could improve a great deal. Uh, I suppose when we probably won't fall for this exact mistake again. <laughs> probably the next time this happens, we'll, the world will completely freak out everywhere simultaneously. But we need better ability to sound the alarm, potentially greater willingness actually on the, parts of exp- on the part of experts to say, I'm very concerned about this and people should start taking action. Not panic, but measured action now to prepare. Uh, because otherwise we'll just have, you know, it'll be a different disaster next time and we'll have sat on our hands for weeks wasting time that could have saved lives. Do you have anything yeah. to add to that? I mean, I think one thing that we need as a society, although I don't know how to get there, um, is an ability to see an expert say that, like, um, they are really concerned about some risk. Um, they think it likely won't materialize but it is absolutely worth putting a whole bunch of resources into preparing and seeing that happen and then seeing the risk not materialize um, and not just like cracking down on and shaming that expert. Um, Cause that's just going to be what happens most of the time. If you want to prepare for things that like um, don't occur that often. And right now we just have a set of incentives um, where I think, uh, public health folks, epidemiologists, like, have to be really brave to um, call for, like, big preparations because, um, you know, if they're wrong, it's sort of, like, really egg on their face. And that's not really, um, I think, like, the right way to think about forecasting. Yeah. Yeah, people have to be able to say there's a 20% chance that this will be terrible. That is sufficient reason to maybe have a few weeks worth of food in your house so that you can engage in physical distancing if it becomes necessary. But that doesn't mean that it's a certainty. Uh, yeah. And And... You know, that that food may not end up being absolutely necessary and instead you could just eat it in the normal course of events <laughs> because having some having several weeks of food in your house isn't that bad. Um, or like we should we should increase manufacturing of hand sanitizer. It's just that there's a real asymmetric risk issue here where I feel like um, preparing ahead of time for a lot of this stuff is just not very expensive, whereas it's disastrous if you find yourself caught um, at the last minute without having done it. Well, I think that... Um argument for a bit more cost on the preparation side is that um, I think the experience with pandemics that or outbreaks that like never got to this level has been a bunch of experts say we need to really call attention to this. It's being ignored. There ends up being a lot of public attention. Um, People end up like just associating it really strongly with whatever location the outbreak happened at. Um, and now, you know, maybe you have stigma against that location. Uh, maybe they're like tourist industry drops. People don't want to trade with them for like, um, you know, maybe years or something that like, um, ended up being nothing. Um, and I think we just like need to find a way to stop that effect from happening. And also to say like, sometimes the risk that's coming is just big enough that like you have to eat that cost and take that risk. I guess just have some, uh, some empathy for like where, um, people who are being more cautious are coming from is like they have seen several times like lower middle income countries economies get really damaged by warnings about uh, epidemic that like never really materialized. Yeah. I mean, I guess I do weigh that up against the fact that this is now potentially going to kill millions of people, possibly tens of millions if we don't have a proper or if, if we hadn't had a proper response uh, or if we weren't starting to do that now. 
it's going to cost tens of trillions of dollars potentially uh, globally to, to to stop this. Um, you know, I don't want to see Wuhan stigmatized, and there's no there's no need for that. Uh, but at the same time, uh, having that happen a few times and then saving tens of trillions of dollars and millions of lives, maybe maybe we do just have to eat that cost, as as, as you're saying. Uh, I guess the other worry there is just sort of the game theory, where if you do that too many times and countries end up paying that penalty too many times, then they have more and more of an incentive to hide outbreaks for a longer and longer period of time. Yeah. Um, and so I think that's sort of like another risk there. But overall, I mean, I agree with you. You just you really want to like um, get rid of this factor. Um, but like even if you can't, like you just can't sit around while a pandemic is coming. Yeah. I guess just many people don't realize the scale of the potential costs, whereas we were aware of that. Uh, I suppose I think epidemiologists should have been aware of it, but perhaps it wasn't uh, wasn't front of the mind for them. Um, but yeah, I guess the, the public is somewhat to blame that uh, people do worry about calling calling out disasters that then don't occur and having their reputation damaged. So next, listeners, next time you hear an expert say that something might go really wrong and then it doesn't, uh, you should not dismiss them, uh, not, not think less of them. Uh, cause that's kind of, it's part of the role that experts play is to have enough understanding to sound the alarm before the probability is hundred percent when the probability is 10% and we need to start taking early action. All right. Um, I guess, uh, to me, this seems like it could be one of the most important things that ever, that, that happens during my lifetime, uh, could have a huge effect on international politics. It's having a huge effect on people's lives right now. Uh, I, I've tried to think back to uh, what is the previous most important uh, event in, uh, in in human history as kind of in terms of a global news story. And I thought potentially the fall of the Soviet Union and uh, the end of the Cold War was uh, perhaps could end up being <laughs> the previous most important event. Or I suppose this, we could all end up triumphing over this. Um, and uh, and perhaps this won't look uh, quite so big in retrospect. Uh, but I suppose that's that's kind of my present guess. Uh, what do you think, Howie? Jeez, hard to say. Um, <laughs> Let's engage in some totally errant speculation uh, yeah. that no one has asked uh, us to do. Uh, it seems like it's got a shot to be an event that's really remembered. I think especially if it has big effects on political systems. Um, so I think September 11th changed the way that the United States government worked for a pretty long time and changed its foreign policy focus, um, changed what civil liberties um, Americans were and were not willing to give up. Um, and, um, you know, a lot of elections really were about who's toughest on terrorists. Um, and so I can imagine something analogous where, um, are you going to prevent this from ever happening again? Um, are we going to be prepared next time? Like ends up being like a really important um uh, part of politics going forward for you know some limited amount of time. Yeah, um, I guess I'll try to finish on a positive note. In fact, I won't have to try that hard because I there, I do have a lot of optimism here. Um, I really do think that uh, the UK, uh, probably also the US, uh, you know, countries like uh, Canada, Australia, do have the chance to basically win over this disease, uh, to go through the suppression phase, uh, to then muddle through what will be admittedly a difficult time uh, where uh, there'll be some fatalities. Uh, and there'll be some economic damage, but then to get through to the other side where we do have sufficiently good treatments and we do basically win a measured victory over this. There's lots of ways that people can contribute, beginning with just staying at home and not not uh, becoming not falling victim to it themselves. I'm I'm optimistic that treatment, like there'll be moderately good treatments that will be available within a year. Uh, and just given the sheer number of people working on a vaccine, I think they have a decent shot at coming up with a vaccine within a year or two. So uh, horrible though things look, 
uh, I think there's lots of reasons to be hopeful uh, that humanity can really pull together here and use technology and science and good policymaking to save a lot of lives and to reduce a lot of economic damage. I've also been impressed with the speed of the economic response. I think a lot of governments are doing the things that we suggested and they're doing them very quickly. Uh, so that's, that, that's really great. Uh, the area that I'm less sure about is poorer countries that don't have the state capacity and don't have the technological capacity. Uh, I just haven't been focusing on that just yet, but we will get to get to it. Um, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to find a positive uh, take on that as well, but uh, but potentially not, in which case that could uh, be a very sad story and something that we need to focus much more on responding to in coming weeks. Uh, I don't think I can follow up on that with anything uh, <laughs> <laughs> with anything worthy. So, um, cool. okay. yeah, I, I just... I, agree with Rob's take that there's um, a bunch of reasons for optimism. Um, and yeah, we're just going to have to see how it goes over the next few weeks. All right. Fantastic. Well, uh, my guest today has been uh, Howie Lempel. Uh, this has been an emergency episode of the 80,000 Hours podcast, uh, and we'll be back uh, with more COVID-19 material uh, as soon as we can uh, figure out our conclusions and, and produce it. Thanks so much. Thanks, Rob.